from New York City. Welcome to Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss issues near and far from personal finance. You can always reach me directly with questions or comments at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or 212-969-6655. Today, I'm joined by Matt Palazzolo. Matt is a senior investment strategist in the Bernstein Wealth Management Group. Matt, thanks for joining. That's my pleasure, Mark. So, Matt, today we're going to talk about IPOs. Part one is a discussion with you to lay the um, groundwork for what an IPO is, why companies do them, why investors invest in them. Part two is a discussion with Jonah Gruda from Mazars about the tax complications of someone who's going through an IPO. So, so let me start with a very basic question, Matt, for our listeners. What is an IPO? Okay, well, an, an IPO is an initial public offering. That's the case where a company that was previously privately held decides they want, that they want to sh- sell shares into the market to investors and essentially raise capital to do it, right? Up until that point, a company could have been raising capital, you know, probably through the bond market. Um, this is the case where they sell equity or ownership to investors that want to own some of that company going forward. And in turn, you raise capital, freeing up capital for that company to invest in any number of projects or, or what have you. And, and this is done in the public markets, right? So you, you could buy an interest in your local restaurant, but you wouldn't consider that an investment uh, initial public offering. Right. Initial public offering would be companies that are trading then on an exchange, the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, or, or anything like that outside the United States. And, and what changes for the company? Are there different regulatory um, environments when you become a publicly traded company? Why would a company go through that or, or why wouldn't they? Well, the, the the most obvious reason to go through it is is to get access to capital because the company needs money. To get money. To, to get money. It may be money that um, they, they could have had access to, to through private investors, whether that's venture capital or otherwise. Um, but this is also another opportunity or an opportunity for the founders or the and or the employees to monetize their ownership. So when you say get money, it doesn't necessarily mean they need money like they're failing. It's just a way to get money. If I own the company, it's great to have all that that exposure on paper. But if I go IPO, now I've got cash in my pocket that I could go buy a house or a plane with. Right. And, and, the, and the business um, generally needs the, the capital in order to grow. Uh, investors are, are traditionally loath to, to just essentially buy into that business just because Mark Penziner, the founder, wants to monetize his ownership. So usually it's in order to grow the business from there. But yes, absolutely. I want to come back to your yeah, question. Go ahead. Um, there's absolutely um, greater requirements on a publicly traded business than there is on a privately held business. Publicly traded companies have to make regular filings. Your accounting has to be up to certain standards. So um, the eyeballs and, and the requirements on a publicly held business are certainly more stringent than they are when you're private. Because now all of a sudden, Wall Street's going to start to cover the company, right? So the the investigation, the due diligence that outside investors are going to do for a publicly traded company might be significantly more than a private one. And not to mention the SEC or, or other regulatory Good bodies that, that have to look at it a lot more closely. And again, make sure that accounting, for example, are up to snuff. So... What's the mechanics of a company going through an IPO? I, I can't imagine they wake up one day and say, I want to go public, and now their shares are on the New York Stock Exchange. No, there's a little bit more to it than that. Unfortunately. So, yeah, uh, for the companies that are going through it. But generally speaking, you, ha- you engage, if you're a business, you engage an investment banker or often enough several investment banks in order to help you go public. That would um, entail making sure that all your 
uh, books are in order, that your business is pretty uh, well-oiled and tightened up, then, then you go out on a roadshow. And so you essentially are marketing yourself to potential investors. You have a bunch of filings that have to occur. But then ultimately, once you're ready to file, excuse me, once you're ready to, to trade on the exchange, you've, you, you've got a, a, a set of book runners that are out there making sure that there's enough buyers of your initial public offering on the exchange on that day to buy the shares, to price it at a certain, in between a certain range that they've put out, and then it starts to trade. So they get feelers for, is this going to be, you know, $20 a share or $25 a share? So they have a feel for where it'll price. That's right. And you, and you, you saw that, unfortunately, um, it didn't work out as well for that business for WeWork, right? They came right. out with an initial range they thought it would trade in, and then they went out to the street and they tried to, to gauge interest, and it wasn't anywhere near where they thought that they were going to be able to price it, and so then they had to pull that that offering. That's a really good example. Let's just take a second on the WeWork one, not to get into WeWork, but you talked about the process. When they decided to go public or go to an IPO, they had to make a whole bunch of disclosures. Yeah. Those disclosures told Wall Street and investors a lot about the company that they may never have disclosed should they be private. That's right. They, they had to say essentially what their revenues, what their costs, what their what their um, expenses and, and um, income was, what their balance sheet looked like. So all of that is, is in a filing. And investors looked at that and, and essentially balked, at least at the price. Now, you talked about the roadshow. I'm guessing the roadshow isn't, you know, dinners at the local Sheridan for, for someone who wants to put in $10,000. So mm -hmm. talk about who the target is when companies are going out or investment bankers are going out on that roadshow. Well, they're, they're, they're going out and they're talking to your largest investors. So it, it, it might be folks like Alliance Bernstein. Very often yeah. we're involved with those. Um, and it's all of our competitors. So, so you have your large investment managers that are out there with analysts, with portfolio managers in a big conference room, talking to management teams, understanding the business, understanding what that capital is going to be used for going forward. And then from there, you know, they're on to the next uh, company down the street to try and to market their business. So it's interesting. This makes me think a bit about the Wall Street machine. So big companies like Bernstein or uh, you name it, Dodge and Cox or the Capital Group are getting access to this, these types of roadshows. How does the individual investor who might be listening to this podcast get access or, or get exposure to, to the IPO market? Yeah, very, very often an individual or what they're sometimes called a retail investor gets access because the, the investment advisor that they work with, the broker that they work with gets an allotment and, that, and then that broker or investment advisor can allocate those shares to the clients that they work with. Um, keep in mind, you know, th there are so many IPOs that, that occur in any given year. For example, last year, there were something like 200 IPOs. And so there's a lot of shares that are on offer from investment advisors that are, that are available to individual investors from time to time. And if there are 200, I would guess the average person listening to this podcast could maybe name three or four of them. So that means that. almost every day something's That's going right. public. That's right. And, 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 you know, and we know about the biggest ones. I think to your point, we know about the largest potential IPOs. But the, you know, the average size on, on an IPO, at least in terms of sales, is something like $175 million. So, I mean, that, that's not Procter & Gamble size, right? right. That's, that's not a big business. It just underscores there's a lot of volume of IPOs, and it also depends on the year, right? 2008, for example, there was something like 30 IPOs in that year. Now, that's an, that's an anomaly. But it's only 30. That's not a lot. That's right. You go back to 1999, there was 500. So it's all over the board. 
right, is the point. And it depends on it depends on the year, depends on the type of business that they're putting out. And I guess it depends on how you know, as an individual investor, what type of IPOs you're getting access to, if at all, because if the investment bank has to get an allotment, then they've got to pass it on to their financial advisors or their institutional clients. Mm -hmm. And then that's got to get down to the individual clients. So I'm guessing it's hard to figure out where in the frankly pecking order someone is to get access to What's a good one? What's an okay one? What's a not so good one? Yeah, I guess it depends on that retail investor, how they make their decisions, right? They either make it themselves or they defer to the, the individual that they work with or, or otherwise. Will but an investment bank keep some of the shares on their books? They very well might. Okay. Uh, now we're getting into the in, inner workings of um, investment banking and, and the sales and trading desk, but they very well might. I wouldn't be surprised, but they, they, they're essentially their job is to put those shares out to their investors, either individual or institutional. You know, you mentioned 1999. I, I still think back to that time as like IPO crazy. I think there's still a, um, a lore around the term IPO. Like they're a way to get rich quick, like there's a hotness and a sexiness to them. Th does that mean, could that just be perception? Do, do IPOs necessarily, are they necessarily good investments? Not necessarily. I mean, um, I, I guess it depends on your time frame, right? If you look out over six months or nine months, some, some work out, some don't. I'll, I'll go back to the, to the um, quantification earlier that there's 200 different IPOs. And so to paint them with a broad brush, I think is, is, is uh, misinformed. Um, there will be some businesses that are Wild successes. You go back to 1997, I believe, when Amazon came out with their, or at least they were either founded or they came out with their IPO that year. If, if it was 1997, they were founded a couple of years later, the IPO. Either way, there was a home run, right? And so you think yeah. about that. It depends on the business. Some of them don't work out. Facebook is a great example of a company that did IPO. The stock went all the way down and then rallied and is is way above where it, where it initial public offered at um, you know years ago. So I think we have to take into consideration the fundamentals of the business, the price also, right? I think what I think a lot of uh, uh, retail investors don't consider, unfortunately, is it's not just about do you know that business and is it a good business that you use, but also what's the price that's being offered and is that fair? And then you have the understanding of what, what, what is fair value, what, what does the rest of the market think about what the fair value is, and, and what's the growth model for the business from here to there. So there might be a company or a retailer that I love, I'm a big fan of as a consumer, it, I want to buy the IPO, but maybe all of that's already baked into the price right. of the stock, and, and there is no major growth potential mm -hmm. over the next five or 10 years. Yeah, that's why I think understanding um, the, the uses of that capital, how that capital might very well be used either to pay down debt, to delever the business, or to help it grow over the next five to 10 years is critically important to understand whether that IPO is going to be a success. So it sounds like in summation, the, the, the research question around an IPO is really at its heart. Although, although it sounds real sexy, no different than buying any other publicly traded stock. No, it's just your first chance to get access to it very often. Um, and, you know, th this is, uh, I think you're right. The, the, the research question around initial public offerings is critical, not only because you have no history on how that stock has traded before, but trying to understand the fundamentals of the business will drive where it is, you know, in, in the future years. And, and I guess we should make that distinction. You said it's your, your first chance to get access right. to the company. Yes. But that doesn't mean there is a first mover advantage in this space. Not, not necessarily, unless on that very first day, right, if somebody gets access to an IPO that, tr that, that is initial public offered at, I'll make it up, $15 a share, and then it trades on day one above $15 a share. All of a sudden, you're, you're at a profit. But that's not a promise. 
it might open at $15 a share or 14 or but, 13 But couldn't that be true on any publicly traded stock at 9.30 in the morning? It yeah. might be a better price to buy than at 4 o'clock, right? right? Un- undoubtedly, undoubtedly, right? So, so I think that we want to demystify this, um, this belief that initial public offerings are always home runs because those are the ones that get all of the, the attention on the, our, our um, television programs, right? CNBC or Bloomberg or whatever it is. Those are the ones that get most of the press, not, not the other ones. But, but we should demystify the whole process. So is it fair to say that we just did IPO 101? I think that's fair. Awesome. Matt, thanks so much for your time. It's my pleasure. We'll now turn our attention in the conversation and ask Jonah Gruda, a partner at the Private Client Services Group at Mazars USA, to join us in the discussion. Mazars is a full-service global tax accounting and advisory firm. Jonah, thanks for joining. My pleasure, Mark. Good morning. Uh, Hope you had a nice holiday. I did. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you. And now we're uh, getting into the thick of year-end planning right before the new year. Yeah, so on, on that note, I know you do a lot of work with corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and business owners who are going through the IPO process. What's the first thing you tell one of your clients when they walk into your office and say, hey, I'm preparing for an IPO? So that, that is a very broad question. You know, it's interesting. I, the IPO climate is, is really hot right now. You know, we're seeing it with what's happened with WeWork, you know, Dropbox, Lyft, Stitch Fix. Um, There's a lot of buzz around IPOs and what potential equity value is going to be. You know, IPOs are very, very complex. So usually when a new client comes into my office, hopefully it's not late in the game. I usually want people to talk to their advisor and, and certainly me. Um, as early as possible, and, and sometimes as early as soon as they get the job at a startup. Um, so the, the, the first thing is, is let's have that conversation fluid throughout the year. Um, but part of what we do is make sure that they're educated. So if a client's coming into my office, um, and it's a new client, let's say, I'm going to want to make sure they know what they have. Do they know what types of tranches of awards they have? Do they have outright common or preferred stock? Do they have restricted stock awards or restricted stock units? Or do they have options? Do they have incentive options? Do they have non-qualified options? Have you know, let me stop you there. I think, that's a, I think that's an, yeah. a, an, an awesome point that we should, we should delve into a little bit. What's the difference for someone in, in simple terms between having the stock and having the option? Okay, sure. So a lot of this is, is on nuance, right? Um, when a company wants to incentivize performance of their, their employees or high performers or even senior executives, they're going to give them some type of uh, deferred compensation or equity compensation award. Um, and the two major forms of that are going to be outright equity grants or some type of option. And um, you could allude to what those mean just on, on, on the terms itself. You know, a stock grant um, you know, to founders or employees is just that. It's unrestricted, fully vested stock of a company, rather common or preferred shares. That gives them voting or non-voting rights, but they have a current equity stake in the company, um, and they may or may not be able to sell that on a third-party tender uh, or transfer that. Um, the flip side of that is an option, and that sounds like what it is. It's an option to buy uh, the company stock at a particular point in time at a particular price um, in the grant documents. Um, they're rather nuanced, 
one is not always better than the other. Um, there is some nuance in how they are taxed, um, but the two major types of awards tend to be stock, outright stock uh, in terms of a, an award unit or uh, uh, an outright share uh, or an incentive or non-qualified stock option. And what's the difference in those? You just mentioned two different types of options, an incentive option versus a non-qualified. Again, broad terms for someone who doesn't do this all day. What's the difference? Yeah, so again, two major types of options um, for performance of services, which we're talking about here, um, incentive stock options and, or non-qualified stock options. Um, both are unique and, and both have some different tax treatments. So an incentive stock option it, it tends to be granted to uh, employees um, to incentivize you know, increased equity value of the company. What's unique about an incentive stock option is that when you exercise the option, there's no income tax consequences. And what, what that really means is when you exercise an option, you are telling the company, I want to exercise my right to purchase shares of this company at the stated price that you're allowing me to. And there's a lot of you know, ERISA issues and foreign INA issues that we don't need to talk about now. But generally, when you get granted an option, which is the first term of, that we should be mindful of, um, you're, you're getting an option to buy a share at a particular date in time. Um, there's a bargain element with that exercise, and that's generally the spread between the fair value of the stock at the time of exercise and the price that the company is allowing you to buy it for, which we like to call the strike price or the grant price. That spread is not taxable to the recipient um, for an incentive stock option. On the flip side, a non-qualified stock option, um, that spread um, is taxable as compensation when you exercise. So for example, if a client is a recipient of an incentive stock option um, and it allows you to buy a share of company stock at a strike price of a dollar and the fair value of that stock at the date of exercise is ten dollars that spread of nine dollars is not subject to ordinary income taxes however it's, if it's a non-qualified stock option that same spread of nine dollars would be subject to ordinary income tax uh, at the taxpayer's highest marginal rate. What's unique about ISO, the ISOs, though, which make them so favorable is there's a bit of a carve-out because while it's not taxable on exercise for regular tax purposes, that same spread is a preference item and has the potential to get taxed for alternative minimum tax, which is a parallel tax system with an effective rate of... 26 to 28%. However, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act made the threshold much higher for taxpayers. So the likelihood someone's going to do the AMT is, is less than it used to be. So just as a quick um, aside here, for, for our, our listeners who would be in a high tax state like New York or California, post the Trump tax bill, it's less likely that they would be an AMT than it might have been in previous years, right? That's right. Usually what, what throws people into the AMT, AMT does not allow a deduction for state and local taxes. Um, so that tends to be added back, which is why a lot of people in California or New York tend to be an AMT just for that state deduction. With that not being an allowable deduction anymore above the $10,000 limit, the likelihood 
for most wage earners is mitigated. Obviously, if you have a taxpayer with a lot of capital gain income over ordinary income, the likelihood that you're going to be in the AMT uh, is more likely. But the general case is that mo more taxpayers are not subject to AMT um, than they would have been in the past. So that, that's the nuance there between an ISO and a non-qualified. You know, generally, there's no tax on the grant date of your option. Um, there's generally no tax at vesting of that option, um, which is a scheduled date of when some of those restrictions are lapsed that allow you to then exercise or have those shares. The first target date we like to think about is the exercise date. And upon that exercise, it's either going to be not taxed for regular taxes if it's an ISO, maybe AMT, but definitely regular taxes if it's a non-qualified option. You mentioned a, a term earlier related to stock. You said the word restriction. Can you talk a bit about restricted stock or maybe just restrictions around stock you'd get when a company goes public? Yeah. So you want to keep your key performers engaged in the company. You don't want them getting these, these awards and then having them leave. So a lot of times there are certain restrictions for service targets. Um, so they need to stay with the company over three years and each year. Um, some of those restrictions are uh, alleviated based on timing. Um, there could be triggering events based on performance. Um, when we say restrictions, we mean that during a particular period of time, those shares or those options can be taken back to the company. Um, so mo most restrictions in the case of options, we talk about really a vesting schedule um, or any type of um, buyback provision. Um, interestingly enough, with, with an ISO, you could leave a company and those ISOs are going to expire within three months generally. So you have to be mindful of that. Um, or if you know, you're, you're disabled or hurt um, or on permanent disability, you have a little bit of a longer time to do something with those options. But when we talk about restrictions on grant, it's just a way to incentivize an employee or an executive to stay with the company uh, in the long haul. But if you Usually, just get as was, if yeah. you just get shares, right? Sometimes there are restrictions around how an executive can sell those shares into the open market after a company goes goes public. Correct? That's right. So if we went back to our timeline, right? We have their S one. Usually, there's buzz around the stock. Uh, excuse me, buzz around a company. Um, you'll have that S1 filed with the SEC. That's really a chance for the executive, the employee, and the public to really look under the hood of the company. And it'll talk about the mission statement. It'll talk about the product or service. It'll talk about their key institutional or individual investors. It'll do a, some type of SWOT review, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Um, and it'll give investors, would-be investors, or, or current employees a chance to really develop their philosophical leaning toward their investment profile. Usually between the release of the S1 and the IPO, it tends to be about two to three months, maybe four months prior to going public, which is when that stock is inactively traded on the public market. And generally speaking, most executives and employees have a lockup period, which is about 180 days. It could be earlier, could be later, but generally we have 180 days in which you can't sell the stock in the open market. Um, you generally won't be able to sell on a private tender offer either. Uh, sometimes you could, employees are allowed to exercise options during that period of time, but they're probably not able to sell it. So you have about nine to 10 months between 
when a company makes the public declaration through the S-1 that they're going to go public and when someone could do something with that. And in that 180-day um, window, the the investor or the owner of the company is, is or the employee is stuck with the fluctuation of the price. And, and that's one of the reasons why when that restriction date passes, you often see a lot of momentum or movement in the stock, right? Because there are all of a sudden all these insiders who are free to trade. Absolutely, absolutely, which is why we like to start the process early because the unique unique issue with options um, is when you have that stock, we want a long-term capital gain holding period, which is generally a year after after you have that share. Now, um, ISOs, to get that preferential treatment, you need to hold it two, day, two years after grant and one year after exercise. Non-qualified options, you just need to hold that share a year after exercise. So the theory being, if you remember when I said there's that bargain purchase element, which is the spread between the fair value at the time of exercise and the strike or grant price, the smaller we can make that spread, the less of an income tax impact it's going to be on exercise. So the thought process being, if you're bullish on a company, if you really believe that this company is going to excel, equity value is going to go through the roof, let's exercise early. Um, lock in that, that your basis, a lower, much lower basis, Let's lock in that holding period now, because if you wait post lockup, when it could be a 10x multiple for value, that bargain element is going to be much, much higher. For example, if, I, if we go back to that earlier set of facts, if I got granted shares at $2 and the fair value is, let's say, $3 at the date of grant, I'm picking up $1 of income if it's a non-qualified option. But let's say, you know what? Let's say I don't have the liquidity to exercise because I still have to write the check for the $2 to buy the shares. Or I'm not so sure how successful the company is going to be post-IPO. So I wait. And now let's say the share is trading at $20. Well, now I have a bargain purchase element of $20 less to two. That $18 is what's going to be income to me. So it's going to be much, much more of, a, of an impact on my cash flow uh, if I wait, if you're bullish. So the but there's a lot of but there's a lot of planning to go around this, right? Because even if you're bullish, for, for someone going through an IPO, this is often a a life changing wealth event, and, and they may want to take some money off the table from from if nothing else other than a risk management perspective. One hundred percent, it's a cheap form of insurance. This is usually newfound money, um, which is why again we start like to start the process early. Normally, what I'll have my executives do, whether if, if they're using Carta or some other. Uh, management service to um, manage the equity stack is we like to model it out is let's let's look at the tranche of awards let's look at the grant date and the grant price let's look at the vesting schedule let's look at the exercise price we'll talk to them about what their hold period may or may not be and we'll talk to them about what they think the terminal value is going to be on a liquidation event and also what their exit strategy is um, we like to model it out because it's going to be you want to manage liquidity you also want to make sure your investment risk is managed. So you're really balancing tax optimization with investment risk. And sometimes they play nicely with each other and sometimes they don't. Um, so each taxpayer's and investor's individual profile is going to really impact the advice we give them. You know, it's interesting because um, you talked about investment advice playing nice with tax advice. And 
not to do a commercial for the two of us, but that, that's part of the reason why you need your investment advisors and your tax advisors talking together because the best investment advice can be ruined by bad tax advice and the best tax advice can be ruined by bad investment advice. Oh, absolutely, Mark. And I'm glad you mentioned that because most of this planning is not done. And I don't advise it to be done in a vacuum. I like to make sure we have the trust in the state's attorney at the table as well to talk about, you know, should we do any gifting of pre-IPO stock to get all that upside out of the taxpayer's estate? You know, some types of options are not even eligible for, for transfer into a, a, a trust. Um, I also like to have the wealth advisor and investment advisor at the table as well because, you know, maybe there's even a leveraged plan that we could borrow against to exercise the options. Or if I have these options, how does that impact the rest of my portfolio um, in terms of diversification, in terms of liquidity needs? So this decision is really a three-pronged approach between, between the tax advisor the wealth advisor, uh, and the estate planner. Um, and we like to make sure we're acting as the client's outside planning office uh, when we model this out. You know what, for, um, for those of you, I'm just going to make a plug. For those of you listening who are not regular listeners but came today for Jonah, there is a podcast. My most previous episode was on this type of modeling and how we think about it with Bernstein's director of, of research, Tara Thompson. So if you're into this idea of how – Jonah and I do this type of modeling and customize it. It's it's worth your your twenty minutes to check out last week's episode. Um, wait, just as a as an aside, Jonah, uh, one question. I think this is an important note to end on. Are all accountants equipped to handle the complications of an IPO transaction for their clients? You know, uh, I don't think so. It really depends on the sophistication of the office and the types of clients that they have. My practice specializes in, in these types of clients. Uh, almost exclusively. Um, other clients may serve as a small to middle market. I would say as as startups are popping up, more and more clients are going to have these issues. So it's really important to seek out a practice that specializes in it. Um, again, there's a lot of nuance. We could take any one of these topics and spend all day just talking about. We're not going to do that. Oh, we're not. If we want to do that, we certainly can. Uh, but no, not not all accounts are equipped to handle, you know, pre-IPO and post-IPO planning. Um, most never see a stock option in their entire career. So um, I, I tend to advise to make sure your practitioner is well-versed in these rules. Jonah, thanks so much for joining. This was really informative. To our listeners, any questions on this or any other topic, I can be reached at mark.penzen or at bernstein.com or at 212-969-6655. Make sure to like us on iTunes or wherever you catch this podcast. Until next time.